My guest today on Conversations with the Candidates is a candidate, but he is also the current mayor of the city of Jackson, Mayor Scott Conger. Uh, mayor Conger and I start off our conversation much the way I start off all the conversations I have with people who grew up in Jackson by seeing if they remember their earliest elementary school all the way through high school. Uh, and like everyone else that I've sat down and talked to, Mayor Conger remembered his uh, start to finish. Uh, he even was like, I can even trace the houses I lived in all the way through. But as part of this series, as the main focus of this series, we got to know Mayor Conger at the beginning of the conversation, especially more as a person rather than the mayor of Jackson. We eventually got into some of the things that he's proud of during his first term, also some of the challenges that he faced during his first term, specifically dealing with the pandemic less than a year into his position as city mayor. We talked about some of the things that he, uh, like I said, is proud of. We also talked about some of the things that he wants to focus on should he be reelected on May 2nd as the mayor of Jackson. And through our conversation, I found out just how nuanced and detailed the job of mayor is. And of course, that probably should be common sense, but I don't think people necessarily realize how much goes into that work, how many things have to be thought about, how many parts of town are affected by every decision. And the position of mayor in Jackson is one that carries a lot of power. Uh, obviously, there's the city council, but a lot of the time in most situations and scenarios, the final say lands in that office of mayor. And Mayor Conger has admittedly surrounded himself with a lot of good people, people that he described as not yes men. So people that will challenge him on things, people that will have discussions. And that is vital for a position that is as powerful as mayor in the city of Jackson to have people to run ideas by, to converse with, to debate with, um, to to help manage a city that is rapidly growing. And that's another point of our conversation, the discussion of how he envisions Jackson growing, not necessarily how much or even how fast, but the direction that he wants to take it in. And it was interesting because he also acknowledged the fact that while growth is important, the way the growth happens is what is most important. And so we hope you enjoy this conversation uh, with Mayor Scott Conger. It was um, much like all the conversations I've had with the other candidates. It was very enlightening. It was very light. And it was very personable. And that is the main goal uh, of each of these episodes, to introduce you a little bit more to the person behind the position. All right, so you obviously grew up in Jackson. Yep. Uh, I always ask this for everybody that grew up in Jackson that I talk to. Can you still trace your uh, elementary school through middle school through high school, school oh, by yeah, school? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure can. So I, I was, you know, starting out, uh, I can trace you house by house where we lived at too. Um, started out living on, on Lambeth Boulevard and um, city schools where I started. So Andrew Jackson, uh, kindergarten through uh, second grade, because that's all Andrew Jackson was at that time. Right. And then you went to Highland Park for third and fourth grade. Uh, but my third grade year after that was when consolidation happened. And so my, uh, my mom was, a, at that time, a county school teacher. Grandmother was a city school teacher. My mom taught at Denmark, did all 32 of her years at Denmark. And so um, we lived over off Parkway on Bayberry at the time. So fourth grade, consolidation happened. I went to school with her because we she had remarried. And uh, they were looking at moving out south anyway. So... Went there uh, to Denmark for fourth and fifth grade, then West Middle School, which is now the Sheriff's Department. That's right. Yeah, was and so uh, then Southside. Okay, so yeah. you you were that you were part of that West Southside yeah group yeah. for the secondary part of your your school career. Mm -hmm. Consolidation hit for me between seventh and eighth grade. Okay. So you and I sort of followed the same trajectory: Andrew Jackson, Highland Park. Mm -hmm. Then I went on to Lincoln. Tiger. Yeah, yeah would have gone to Lincoln on that whole path, but all that happened. Yeah, I was actually. You know, it confused me at first when we look at at Pope being built. I was thinking, man, you know, that's a that's a city school. We're going to get that building back. Uh, and then my mom, 
who taught the county system, you know, through into consolidation. So, you know, I did my first year at Pope. I said, wait a second. That was a county school, yes. Yeah, so I was Lincoln in the after consolidation zone for Pope. Right. And then went to Denmark. Now, your grandmother taught at Andrew Jackson? She taught, no, she taught no? at okay. uh, West Jackson. Okay. And then taught at Highland Park, two schools that no longer exist. That's where I remember it from. All right, because I knew <laughs> she taught at a school I went yeah. to, and I got I would get her confused with Miss Stanley, uh-huh. who was a who was a first grade teacher yeah. at um, at Andrew Jackson. And right, so she was at Highland Park. Mm-hmm. Um, and your grandfather obviously was also yes, Mayor was Conger. Mayor. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and how much of that? How much did that play in you wanting to pursue? this position as far as just being around it as a kid growing up that being part of like for most people that's not part of their everyday life as a kid right well you know not not really much of mine either um so in he went out of office in 89 so i was six years old uh and so you know most of my life with my grandfather was you know post office was you know he was a travel agent after that and then retired fully and so you know my whole life he was Granddad, I, I remember going to Old City Hall. I remember doing the the campaign things I, when he ran for Congress in 88, uh, when he ran for re-election, the special election in 88. I remember those two more than I remember the 87 election. Um, but remember, you know, being in old the city commission meeting hall and, and crawling around City Hall and, and doing those things. But, yeah, most of my life was just granddad. Yeah. Um, but, you know, everyone still called him mayor. Uh, it's right. just kind of one thing you get stuck with. And so um, – yeah, it was still had the connection, still knew the people, but he was he was granddad my whole life. And I remember when I when I was going to run for city council in in 2011. I talked to him late 2010, and he had gone pretty far in his dementia. He ended up passing in 2011, and uh, had moments of lucidity. And we were talking. I said, "I think I'm going to run for city council. This is why I want to do it." And uh, we we talked about. It. He said, "Well, you know, as long as you want to do it for the right reasons." I'll do whatever I can to help you. If you want to do it to get your name in the paper, get on TV, I'm not going to help you at all. And that really sticks with me continuously of, of why why this work exists, to make a difference, to make a, an impact. And he said, you do it to serve people. You don't do it to get in the paper. And um, so that's why I, I try to remember every day. That's great. That's great advice, too, yeah. because I think, especially in the political climate today, in 2023, it seems like a lot of people who are in elected positions want to do it to get their name in the paper and to get their face on television. It almost feels like the inverse of what your mm-hmm. granddad talked about. Yeah. So, and I know on a local level, um, there's probably less of the name in the paper kind of deal and, you know, face on the TV kind of deal. But it seems like that mentality is slowly even creeping down to the local you level know, it as is, well. And that, you know, if we, if we have things going on, and that's what I try to, to push our people to the camera, you know, because they're the ones doing the work, right? I mean, they're the ones that are that are actually boots on the ground doing the work, and that's been, a, I think, a big shift for them. Um, you know, some of our departments that normally haven't had to go do interviews, um, well, I've, I've pushed them to do it because people need to see those faces and those names that are doing the work, and not just someone who's elected to office. I want to come back to that in a minute, but I, I do want to stick on the the school track mm-hmm. a little bit longer. So, you graduated in Southside at what year? 2001. 2001. Mm-hmm. So were you, were you, was Jabari Greer in your class? He was a, he was a year ahead of me. year ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Al Wilson was two years ahead of me okay. at JCM. Yeah. So I know what that was like being around yeah. a, an elite athlete who was going to go on to be a professional level um, player. So how, how great was it this year f- for you to experience Southside girls going undefeated as an alumni? Because you have a connection yeah, to that yeah. place. No, it was great. Um yeah, I was nervous. So I'm, as a, as a former athlete, very superstitious just by nature when it comes to sports. And uh, last time we went to Murfreesboro when the when the boys played in the state championship game, they lost. So I said, nope, not even, I'm not going. I'm not even going to pretend to go. But I turned it on television, and I was just I was nervous the whole time. And then when the uh, the other school in the championship game was inching toward them, they were within six. Like, Man, should I turn this game off? Like, am I, is it going to be me that's going to cause them to lose? Um, but yeah, it, it was great. Um, and then Brent McNeil – who's a head coach, uh, he's a year younger than me. And so we grew up together, played football together throughout uh, middle school and high school. So I think even back on Will Heights days. Uh, so, yeah, I've, I've known Brent and worked with his mom at Lane. So, yeah, great people. And was excited to see teammate, friend, and, and just um, school representing you know, the first team in Jackson's basketball history to go undefeated and win a championship. It's impressive. Yeah. It's interesting to me as somebody who grew up in the school system, has taught in the school system, I graduated from JCM, and now I'm teaching at JCM. 
there is something I feel like a little bit different about Southside and the culture that they've created out there as far as just the, the people who work there went to school there. Yeah. A lot of them went to school there yeah. and there's this tradition and there's these expectations and it feels like that community might be just a little bit more tight knit oh, than, than the other high schools. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, cause you look at just the zoning of it, right? I mean, we, you know, growing up out there, we talk about North of Forkadeer. Mm. I mean, that's, <laughs> if you got North of Forkadeer, you were in North Jackson. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, it's, um, you know, my mom still lives there, lives in South Jackson. My in-laws still live there. And so, um, yeah, it's, you know, that, that path of you're always a Hulk. I mean, it's really no matter where you go, you still are. And from, from Southside, did you go to Lane? Is that right? Or did no, you... I went to Ole Miss. Ole Miss, yeah, okay. Yeah, Ole Miss. And then so my mom, like I said, taught 32 years in the school system, uh, was grading papers one night, and we always had animals in the house and dog barked or something. She looked up and ruptured the same disc that Peyton Manning ruptured. Uh, in his neck now you know we didn't go do all the stem cell therapy overseas or anything like that uh that was gosh that was back 2005 or 6 somewhere around there and um it she had the the spinal fusion surgery so she still lives in the house she lives in now you know eight acres horses all this stuff couldn't lift over five pounds for six months couldn't drive a car for three months couldn't ride in a car for six weeks and so i was by herself and i moved home and it took some time off from school and uh, had no idea, you know, what that path to completion looked like. Uh, so after she got done through therapy and was able to kind of do things on her own, I, I looked, you know, do I go back to Ole Miss? I was looking at University of Memphis, Lambeth. I mean, not Univers- University of Memphis. It was on Jackson State campus at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, working at Rafferty's and through a storm one night, not wanting to go change shoes out in the outside, I uh, started talking to a guy, and he said, hey, you kind of, kind of big. You play ball? I said, well, you know, I did. He said, you want to play for Lane? You know, if I can get a scholarship and I can uh, play fullback, I'm there. And that was on a Saturday. Next Wednesday, I was talking to the head coach and um, went into spring practice. Second day of spring practice, tore my shoulder up, did what all great athletes do, injured, retire. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so finished out my last three semesters at Lane and then uh, then worked there for, for five years after that. Well, let's talk a little football. So you played yeah. fullback? Did you play fullback in high school? I played center in high school. Okay. Yeah. A soaking wet 195-pound center. That's impressive. <laughs> You must have been mean. Like, that's it. I mean, right? Yeah, like, you had yeah. to be mean to play oh, yeah, center at 195 yeah. pounds. Yeah, it was, yeah. Tenacious. Mm-hmm. So, what? why did you want to play fullback at Lane? Well, because I, I had gotten into to weightlifting, bodybuilding. I was I was kind of looking at some fullbacks in college, you know, D1 level, and they were they were squatting about the same as I was squatting, you know, the five, 600-pound level. They were, you know, we were all same size bench, and I thought, you know, I don't want to play offensive line. I'm not tall enough to play offensive line in college, but um, I was, you know, running a 4.8. I'd catch a ball. I could hit. thought, That'd be be fun. Well, yeah, and I was going to say, you have a chance to get the ball yeah. fullback. Yeah. I mean, not much, but more than center. So. Yeah, way more than center. Of course, now they've just sort of phased fullback out of the, out of the no, game now completely. It's gone. It, was, it was phasing out then. Now it's just gone, yeah. Um, well, I see, I had no idea about that. I, mm-hmm. I knew that there was a connection to Lane. Uh, I didn't know it was because of football. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's really cool. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. So you, fi- you finished at Lane in, in what year? 2000. You asked me all these years now. Two thousand eight. Well, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, I mean, a, lot, lot, a lot has happened since then. <laughs> I, I w- let me let me back up a little bit. What was that like coming back to Jackson after after being in Oxford for for three years? Was mm-hmm. that hard? I mean, was that to come back to where you left? I mean, it was different. Um, you know, I think you know, the transition for me wasn't as much so as cultural transition, but um, living on my own, uh, had an apartment, had a roommate. You know having to take care of my dog that was it and then coming back home horses dogs cats mom you know taking care of all that and then um you know going and getting a job and helping out and just kind of the i think the shock for me was what's the next step and then taking that year off of doing that um yeah kind of really a shock you know of there but you know jackson's home i still would come home you know you know once a month or once every couple of months anyway so it, you know oxford's just two miles two hours down the road so right. not a big travel distance so what kept you in jackson once you graduated from lane uh you know i was going to teach actually yeah i got a secondary endorsement in history a minor in english and went on uh, two interviews in two different schools the they had two teachers that were supposed to retire and they didn't um so had no idea what I want to do after that. I'm thank God every day that they didn't hire me because I'd have been an awful teacher. Um, you'd you'd figured it out. You'd have figured it out. <laughs> I don't know. I taught Sunday school for a while. Those kids, <laughs> they learned nothing. Um, but 
yeah, just you know, dropped my resume off at, uh, at Lane College one day, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and um, got a job in the admissions office, and that progressed from there. So who was who was the president of Lane at that point? Dr. McClure was. McClure, yeah. okay. And did, were you there still when Dr. Hampton came in, or uh, had you moved no, on? I, I by moved that point? on uh, to the. Uh, he's either United Way or West Tennessee Healthcare Foundation when, when he came. Okay. So that's what I was going to talk about next. I knew you were at United Way. Was mm-hmm. foundation before that? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then United Way was into, straight into the mayor's office, right? Yeah. I had a whole 12-day transition from election day to mayor's office. How long were you at United Way? Um, right at four years. I think I got I started May 1st of 2015, and uh, I left June 29th of 2019, so just a little over four years. Well, I do want to compliment you on that time there. And and the reason for that is I didn't know anything about United Way until about 2015. Yeah. And I think at that point, Dr. Ruffin was superintendent, Mm -hmm. and she was really pushing um, faculty and staff to to get involved, to donate, to find out more about United Way. And then that's when I found out that you were were over it. And I was like, okay, well, this is – I didn't know what it did, and I slowly found out more and more. Now, of course, Matt Marshall is over, and I know Matt. Oh, yeah. And so the work that they do in a community, how important is that? Gosh, it's so important. And I think that was – you know, my, my role and kind of the charge from the board was you you got to get our name back in the conversation. Um, and so that's that's what we did for four years and just trying to get the name back in the conversation, which, which you know, Matt is phenomenal, way better equipped for that role than I ever was. Um but yet, you know, getting back in and talking with people and just rebuilding relationships where either they had forgotten about us or they had a bad experience or they heard something negative, uh, but just rebuilding those relationships. And I mean, what Matt has been able to do since since I left has been great. You know, partnering with the city for financial empowerment, doing uh, the education initiatives that they're doing, uh, and then also the the grants that go through. I mean, it's, you know, if you're worried about how your money's being spent at a nonprofit, I mean, give to United Way because they're going to, they're going to run run those nonprofits through the ringer on the programs uh, before they make the investment. Yeah, they do great work there. Great work for the community, for the whole community. Mm-hmm. Before we completely leave the school conversation, as mayor, you have put the city back in the conversation with the school system, even though legally the city has no financial responsibility. Yeah, we're, we're the divorced dad. Right. Uh, no role in the parenting plan, just send some child support money. Right. So, so <laughs> let, but let's talk about that because that, I think that not just, you know, monetary investment that you didn't have to do, but partnering and being part of the conversation. Why was that important to you as, as the mayor of the city? Yeah. So I, mean, I, I said during, during the first campaigns and say to the day, you know, so the city is not in the school business, but we are in the economic development business. And part of economic development is the school system. And uh, we have to make sure that those investments are happening, uh, that we're at the table and partner any way that we can. Um, you know, so, and, and for me is how do, we, how do we prevent that brain drain? You, know, you ask what kept you here? How do we keep people here? And so we've, you know, and in my office, I've done the youth council where we have a high school representative from, from every high school. Um, and how do we just stay in the conversation of making sure that our school system is the best that it can be um, and improving. And so, you know, while we may not be in the school system, we get opportunities to do a public-private partnership to build a school. Mm-hmm. Um, we get an opportunity to, through, you know, to gift Omen Arena to the school system. Um, to be able to just find ways to partner to you know the half a million dollars that we invest every year in the education foundation, um, because that is important. That is the the cornerstone of economic development is the school system. That's that's one of the first questions that any industry any company asks is about our school system. It's interesting because I do feel like public education is at some type of a crossroads now, just with the way the job market is evolving, with the with the industry that's coming to the area right now. I know when I in my short time in Haywood County, uh, like my second week there is when Blue Oval was announced and everything shifted. I think they came because us. you went to take. That's Haywood well. County. That's what yeah. I heard. They yeah. were like Billy was like, "Listen, Gayports in Haywood County. Well, yeah. this, is, this is where we're putting. We're this. going. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, I didn't last another year after that. There, so it might have all been connected somehow. But that being said, a big shift and a big focus now has been on uh, work-based learning. And in my opinion, sometimes we've almost like taken that too far and forgotten about not necessarily the academic side, Mm -hmm. but then there are still kids who want to go to a four-year university and have the college experience. And so I was kind of pumping the brakes and, hey, let's not forget about those kids still exist Mm -hmm. as well. But with the city – 
being at the table, at least like you said, and I like that phrase at the table, there are there are partnerships that could be had between city and even the school system mm-hmm. for work-based learning opportunities too, correct? Yeah, and I think one of the things that we're really excited about is the the work ready lab that the governor put in the budget for next year. Um, you know, we've the chamber's been working on that. When I when I came in, I started working on that as well. But thirty-eight million dollar uh, facility on Jackson State's campus. Uh, that's it's kind of both the best of both worlds. You can go through the the programmatic approach for Jackson State, but industry that's coming in can rent spaces, train, hire on site. Uh, then it also kind of works with the front end of it is all anyone who's on state assistance can go there and just one stop shop. Here's your assistance. Oh, by the way, X Y Z companies in the back they're hiring. They're going to train you here while you're hired, and then let you go out to the plant and so on a bus route things like that but yeah it's um it's vital to be involved in that and important to just be in the conversation yeah i want to shift the conversation a little bit to your your first term in office which is sort of you know coming to a close uh regardless of what happens on may 2nd like this first term will will be done so you were sworn in what june or july of 19 of of 2019 Mm -hmm. and not even Seven or eight months later, you you were smack dab in the middle of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. How did that? Well, this, this is a two part question. I guess the first one was how did that derail any plans you had at the beginning of your term? It derailed everything. <laughs> I mean, absolutely everything. We were in the first year. You know, we the a continuation budget was passed, pretty much copy and paste budget from the previous year. We had started peeling the layers of the onion back and figuring that out. Uh, figuring out where we were, may, starting to make plans, and then, boom, a pandemic happens, and it's just, here all your plans, just throw them out the window because they're no good anymore. Um, you know, I, I remember we had a, a budget meeting the other day, and one of the council members was talking with a newer member and said, look, I remember a few years ago, like, the mayor presented a deficit budget to us for 2020, or for 2021. And I thought, my gosh, what's going to happen? And then we ended up with a $5 million surplus. She's like, you know, he said, "You got to have faith in this process." And I thought, "Well, Lord, you had a lot. I had a lot of faith in it because I had no idea we were going to go with it because it was just no clue where revenues were coming, no clue, you know, what your expenditures were going to be." We we fur- furloughed 196 employees. We laid off 26 employees um, and during that furlough time. I, I took a 15% pay cut myself, which was double taxed mm-hmm. because the council sets my my pay, and so I couldn't take it off the top. So I had to get taxed for my income and then pay again, pay. and so. Um, yeah, it was just how do you survive? But I think one thing it really did for us, there had been we had, we had all worked in silos so much, and so I remember probably late February, early March, um, I just called school system, county, uh, health department, hospital, JEA, chamber, uh, EMA, and uh, said so we we got to we got to be together in this thing. We got to figure out what we're doing, and we got to start talking about what that looks like. And um, and we did. I think that really went a long way in repairing and building relationships across those areas because we were forced to talk to each other two, three hours a day sometimes. Um, didn't agree on everything. We, we you know, had disagreements. But at the end of the day, we, we realized that what the most important thing was and then put on that united front going forward. And I think that, that really helped us throughout the process and created friends that will you know, last a lifetime. I, I want to say something that I didn't notice because I, I look forward to those. I don't know if they're on Wednesdays or something. Were they oh, on yeah, Wednesdays? Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I think, I think so. they were on Wednesdays, yeah, where was, everybody was on their box and the yeah. media was there and Kim Tedford, like all everybody was on, like the Brady Bunch. It looked yeah. like. But one thing that struck me throughout that whole stretch of you know from March to really June or July, mm-hmm. it felt like, was how in sync you and Mayor Harris were in lockstep on messaging yeah. because because we you know our our government is weird we have a county mayor we have a city mayor of a, a county commission a city council and it's almost like they're inverse as far as like the power structures mm-hmm. go and blah yeah, blah blah yeah, yeah. but if the county mayor would have been saying one thing and you would have been saying one thing even if you know like that could have been a disaster because you had the narratives out there of mm-hmm. like I'm not wearing a mask I'm not, like all of these competing narratives yeah. from both sides of the aisle but you guys were in lockstep. Like, was was that a hard consensus to come to, or did you just work well naturally? Well, I think our, our our personalities work well naturally. We're we're both you know smart Alex, <laughs> and uh, it, it works well. But I think you know we look you look around the state, and and we heard it from other 
areas of, hey, you know, city mayor and county mayor, they're just, their button heads are not happening. And then it really hit home for us. We got asked, he and I both got asked to be on a kind of the, I can't remember what it's called now, but more kind of re-entry, reopening business um, state uh, committee. And Commissioner Ezel in there and said, hey, these two guys here, you all need to take notes from them because they're the ones doing it the best across the state. I'm, I'm texting him. I was like, he just, is he talking about us? And I'm texting Harris on the Zoom call. And yeah, and so it's, um, you know, as well as we work together and, and all of us, you know, just, and, you know, he, he came in my office before all that happened. We just talked for, you know, two hours and about 6.30. He said, you know, I've, I've never been in this office and had a conversation. So that's, that has to change. And because so, you're all right in the same part of, t- like, it's yeah, not a long yeah, walk. Like I can see your office from my office. Like, you know, I thought about getting laser pointers and kind of hitting him with it. But, uh, yeah, and just, a great relationship and uh, i think all of us developed a great relationship throughout that because we just we had those honest conversations about where we were mentally where we were physically our our individual organizations were and what we were thinking and how we're going to do our best to keep people safe and the ultimate goal knowing the ultimate goal of making sure that our hospital was not overrun um and just keeping that at the forefront of all of our thoughts yeah and the communication like you said that was the most important dynamic of that whole thing because all of everyone had to be on the same page mm-hmm. and know the same information and be involved in those conversations. Oh, yeah. So like that, I guess what I was going to say is that did not go unnoticed the way all of you work together. And like, it was this, I, th- I feel like it was as smooth as it could have been as it could have been. Yeah. I think as it could have been. Yeah. I mean, you know, there were meetings where voices were raised and, you know, but I mean, at the end of it, we came, this is what we're going to do. And mm-hmm. then, that's, that's how it was. Um, here's the second part of that question. So I ask if, if COVID derailed and you said it derailed everything. The second part of that, though, is in some way, were you are you a leader who thrives in a situation? I don't want to say like COVID or like a pandemic because you can't <laughs> figure. But what I mean is like in Nobody a, cri- in a crisis that. sort of situation because it seemed like at the beginning, like you guys were making – all of the right decisions like it, it, it seemed like in your like the first year and a half two years i'm not saying that anything has been made that i've disagreed right, with after yeah. that but i just mean like big decision you made it's like you you nailed it every time because even after covid sort of settled down or at least in july we had the whole um the black lives matter stuff mm-hmm. and i remember you with a megaphone in the parking lot and you were visible you were present and you were listening to concerns mm-hmm. So do you feel like in those those intense situations that you thrive as a leader in those, or is it just something that you had to react to and did the best you could? You know, I, I, I never stopped to think about that. Um, you know, I, and I remember, kind of go back to my granddad thinking, just I guess it's probably how we're just wired. Um, I think after he left off, someone asked him about mistakes. He said, look, I never thought about them. Like, my job is to make decisions. If it doesn't work, then figure out how to make it work or or to change paths or to pivot to do something else. Like you can't go back and look at what you did. And so you have to be able to make decisions quickly. And that's a lot of what my job is daily, is just making decisions and whether they're how big they are or small they are, um, you got to live with them. And if they're not the right ones and you got to figure out how to make it to the right decision. Right. And that's, that's really, that's what we kind of looked at during the whole process of, well, that wasn't right, but how do we make it? And I learned, I learned in COVID never to say never. Um, my, my staff reminds me of that because um, there was like one week I said, you know, I remember the, I said, zombies can walk down Royal street before I close the civic center. The next week we were closing the civic center. You know, like, I remember that <laughs> thing you said last week about zombies. And <laughs> it does seem like that's the way that was during the pandemic. Yeah. Like it, it changed so much from day to day. I remember when everything started happening fast. I was in Texas. Um, my daughter lived there at the time and I was down there from my spring break and, they that Tuesday were down there. They they started shutting everything mm-hmm. down. And I was talking to people in Jackson. They're like, "Well, we're not shut down yet." But then in a couple of days, yeah, we started shutting everything mm-hmm. down. And so it was just interesting to see how that all played out. And now that we're, you know, two years out of it, it seems like man, like everybody went through a lot. Yeah. And I think we're going to see the effects of it. I, I feel like I see the effects of it now that I'm back in the classroom teaching that, yeah, of what that was like on the it. students. Mm-hmm. And you know, it just it's a. I think we're going to, it's going to take a while to get things oh, sort of yeah. straightened out again. Uh, you, you mentioned passing a deficit budget, but then coming out on the other side with a $5 million sur- mm-hmm. surplus. I remember articles about that in the paper, and I remember like, hey, that, that, that's really impressive because 
no matter what the political narratives are on a national scale, usually those are social issues. Really, what everybody cares about is where their tax dollars are going and what a local budget looks like. Mm-hmm. So how did you attack that? And how did like how did you end up with the with the result of a five million dollar surplus after one year? Yeah, we uh, so the kind of the the running joke among the council members is that I take a hatchet to the budget. Like you see the first iteration of it and then I take a hatchet to it and then we pass it. Um, and that's, I guess is why we just go through and cut anything superfluous. And I think one thing that we did in establishing a budget committee um, and just looking at finances from a year round aspect and then changing our budget process from the difficult part was communicate with department heads, right? If they were looking at budget to budget, well, we're not going to do that. I, what you had budgeted last year, it matters, but it doesn't really matter. I want to know what you spent last year. We're going to look at actuals and then plan our budget based on your actuals. And that was really something new for a lot of department heads because they go, no, well, my budget said this. My budget said, you know, a million dollars. Well, you spent 400000 I'm not going to put a million dollars back in your budget. Now, if you need it, then we'll put it back in there. But show me you need it. Mm-hmm. Justify that you need that. And then the light bulb will come on. Oh, okay. Like, I'm not taking it from you, but you're not going to have that cushion there if you don't need it. There, we have so many other things that need it. Um, and so just – and then, I mean, people will tell you how cheap I am. I'm just cheap. I complain still over the the $300 printer that's in our office. Like, I still complain about it uh, because it, one the other one broke. I was like, just fix that one. No, we can't. And so, but anyway, um, it just – you know having everyone look at every dollar that we're spending, are we spending it wisely? Are we spending it the best of our ability? Is it the highest and best use of the dollars that we're spending? And yeah, we had, you know, we were fortunate with sales tax to increase and I'll, you know, being able to admit faults, I was very critical of the state legislature in 2019 when they changed the method of sales tax collection. It used to be on population based. Mm-hmm. And so overall number, then based on your population formula, you get this. And so we were seeing three, four, 5% increases every month. 2019, it changed to point of sale. And so we actually saw a flat growth. And then areas like Nashville and Memphis saw a negative because it was going to actually where it's sale instead of based on population. And I'm I'm beating, I'm you know calling the, the representative, that's the stupidest idea ever. Fast forward to COVID, everyone's at home buying things and our sales tax jump up 20%. I'm calling them back on, you know, guys, that was pretty smart actually. <laughs> It worked out. Yeah, it, yeah. it worked out. The, yeah, the silver lining of COVID. Uh-huh. Uh, let, let's talk about that a little bit, though, too. How do our sales tax not like, – because I know I saw the article, fastest growing metro area, mm-hmm. and then I was like, for real? And then I looked it up. I'm like, okay, ba- ba- based on what these say, then yes, th- like we are. How do our sales – are we still seeing incremental growth in our sales tax dollars? I would say, yeah, we're still double-digit growth. I think when, when the peak of the inflation, uh, we were down – I think our lowest month, I'm going to say a number wrong, and but I mean, maybe, I don't, we haven't had a negative month yet. I think our, our lowest was maybe 2 or 3% growth, but uh, we're starting to see some slowdown just because of the economy the way it is. Uh, I mean, people still have to buy groceries. They still mm-hmm. have to buy the necessities and sales tax on that. So if you look at economically how inflation works, it actually benefits revenue from municipalities through sales tax because items are higher than the sales right. tax is higher. Um, but we have to plan out, you know, we're having an entire month this year of no sales tax on groceries. So you have to plan that out as well. Mm-hmm. And that's probably, you know, where a lot of those sales tax dollars come from. They're not just superfluous spending, but they're buying necessities. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, as you see inflation go, then you see sales tax increase. And then at some point it'll level off and then we'll really have to be dependent on the actual growth of our city for that sales tax growth, because, the buying power won't always be what it is and won't always be the, the requirement. So as inflation starts to, to taper off, then we'll see that growth taper off as well. Well, that's what I was going to ask if how much if it is inflation and how much are we are we getting more people coming into Jackson? Is our tourism yeah, picking tour, up? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, our I, I saw the numbers yesterday. We're we are every month having the best month that we've ever had. And so um, Memphis National are pricing themselves out. And then we have now people here staying in Jackson. They're looking for places. They're looking to start businesses. They're looking, um, you know, we had a company in last week that's looking to invest and and put in, um, you know, if they do invest in Georgia Pacific will be the second largest investment in Jackson's history if they choose Jackson. So um, we have a lot of attention on us now and people coming through here, making stops or not wanting to, to spend 
$400 for a hotel room, they can spend $150. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're getting the benefit of that as well. I think it's interesting the way you talked about attacking the budget. And what it sounded like, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the departments had just always, well, this is what we budgeted. We've always budgeted. Nobody's ever questioned it. So we're just going to keep budgeting this money, even though we spend 40% yeah. of what we budgeted. And the way you looked at it, like, so I'm going to use a word that it seems like a, it's a, it's a dirty word or it's a word that has a connotation to it. Like the word progressive has a connotation to it. Mm-hmm. But in reality, if you want anything, a business, a city, uh, whatever it is to grow, you have to be progressive. And that doesn't mean liberal. Right. That just means looking at things in a different way, well, especially mean, as you grow. The root word of progressive is progress. Right. What's the opposite of that? I mean, so right. it's, uh, yeah. And, and and that's how we've been able to, I think, to do a lot is just, what are we doing? I, I've, I joke about it, but it's it's legitimate. Our core financial system is an AS400 model. It is a dot and matrix system that they have to export and put into a CVS file, CSV file, and then run spreadsheets. We're doing an $85 million budget on spreadsheets right now. That sounds terrible. Oh, it's, it's, okay. it's awful I mean, for them. I don't have it on my computer because I can't <laughs> do it. But July 1, we'll have an entirely new core financial system, which will be able to do that and up to date. Um First paycheck, the first pay period when I took office, my assistant handed me an envelope. It was a paycheck. Like, what? Are you okay? <laughs> um, and so then we ran the numbers. It was $10,862 that we were spending a year paying people. Just and on paper. Just, just on, on pay- printing the on checks. Printing the checks and the machine to fold it and do all that. And yeah, it was. Um, now, I-, I know you had people push back on that, though, didn't you? Like when they're for the direct deposit thing, because yeah, they, they they wanted their check. Oh, I had some. Yeah, well, <laughs> people are weird about that, man. And, you know, the funny, yeah, there some of them were weird about it. But some of them because we do longevity checks and things like that, and extra duty and stuff. And some are like, you know, my wife don't know about this longevity, <laughs> and she doesn't know about this extra. Like, can you put them in different accounts? <laughs> so was, like, was, we can do that. Yeah, <laughs> do the best we can. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting because that, that that's something I read that in the paper that you mm-hmm. uh, the Jackson Post in your interview with uh, Julia Ewalt and you and you said that and I was like they were still cutting paper checks in yeah. 2019, mm-hmm. and I think that's an example. Oh, of, I got a better one for you. We still do paper time cards today. Oh man, because our core because <laughs> our core financial system is not where we can do it, and so come July we want, but right now we're still doing paper time cards. 2023. 2023. People still. Yeah, Zoom. You got like my out. girlfriend works remote. She's a creative director. Her company's based in Los Angeles. She's in Philadelphia, but we're still we're still punching yeah. time cards. Man, not even punching. We're filling them out. Sorry, you're filling. Yes, filling them out. Yeah. Wow. Like get here quick, July. Yeah. Um, you have assembled what I think is a very impressive team around you. Can you talk about like where did you, did you know you wanted a team like that in those specific positions? Uh, in your, I'm going to use the word cabinet. I don't know if that's yeah. the right word. In your cabinet before you ran for mayor, or was that something you saw in other cities and you wanted to model? I think knowing knowing what had been done historically um, and just the limitations that, that lent itself to uh, in the mayor's office of having mayor special assistant. That's it. Um, we, there was no in-house grant writer. There was no one looking. You know, at times, there was different departments that focused on community development, but not really. Um, and then there was no communications person. Like it was, if you got a press release, okay. But you know what's going on in the city. I think, and, and Kenny can give the better numbers. But it was the the Facebook following for the city of Jackson was dismal. I mean, non-existent because there weren't any activity there. And so I knew we need to have someone do communications. Uh, someone had to get up every day and think about how we're communicating, what we're doing. Um, someone need to have a, a role in how we're looking at our grants, how we're doing community development, innovation, kind of driving everything that's, that's going on. And then someone who can, uh, chief of staff that can help me with our departments. And uh, that's, that's where it started. And then through, through the grants that Lauren's gotten, we've gotten Love Your Block, we've gotten Cities for Financial Empowerment, which shows you either how good she is or how awful I am. <laughs> Um, because I applied for the same grant when I was at United Way and they turned us down. She applies for it. They've given us the grant. They've offered us another grant. They just keep piling on. I'm like, well. I feel like talking to Lauren it's her, that yeah, she it's, is an incredible grant writer. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's just my that's just my feel from the yeah. conversations that we've had. I, I don't think I, w- I would be terrible at grant writing, but I feel like she Oh, yeah, she, she nails excellent. it. Yeah, absolutely. How much does it bother you, though, when there's na- there are narratives out there talking about how much money that the city's spending when the things in question are actually 
monies that you've gotten from grants that we're not even spending. We just happen to get that money because yeah. we wrote grants for it. Well, I mean, not even that. Let, let's just say we were spending the money. We paid our debt down, cut it in half. We've increased our fund balance to actually where it is a healthy fund balance. We're not borrowing money to survive anymore. And so to even, you know, I get it. It's the political season, right? You got to try to picket things that you don't like, but um, you can't deny the facts of what we've done being fiscally responsible. And so those things are working. Uh, the grants are working. Uh, we're, we're being able to do more things and invest in the in our community more than just hitting the X's and O's. We're actually being able to invest in quality of life. We're able to, to help people out, financially empower people. Um, and then those those small mini grants are through Love Your Block, which are focused on neighborhood pride, to just exponentially grow those and to see people you know coming out and neighbors helping neighbors um, and seeing entire blocks change just within a week. Um, those are those are intangibles that you really you can complain about somebody being in the office, but they're working. They're they're the doers. I feel like this is the first time, and I don't know. Maybe it's. I think it's. It speaks to the way that your office communicates what you're doing. I think it speaks to the priorities that you have. This is the first time I remember the mayor's office in the city of Jackson where it seemed to be concerned with. Now, I'm not counting your granddad. I was yeah. a little kid. I just mean in recent <laughs> history, they seem concerned with growing all of Jackson in every mm -hmm. part and really looking at every every neighborhood in within the city limits. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, you know, I, when I had Lauren on, I talked to her a lot about Love Your Block and what they were trying to do, yeah. the idea behind that. And I think that's so important because a lot of times I do think people in certain parts of the city feel like either they've been overlooked or nothing is progressing in their part mm -hmm. of town and they wonder why. And there is apathy that builds up. There's a hardness that builds up. And there's a distrust that builds up. And there's a distrust yeah. that builds yeah. up. So, you know, just taking that, and I think Lauren even mentioned that. She was like, the first conversations we had were hard conversations with with some people in the neighborhood because mm -hmm. they were so used to being overlooked. And yeah. then once they saw we were going to be there, they were like, okay. Yeah, or they're used to saying, yeah, we'll be here and then never show up. Right. Yeah. So hats off, hats off to you all for, for recognizing that and, and investing mm -hmm. in those areas. Um, last thing. As your first term comes to an end, are there some things that you can look back on and you can say like one or two things where like, I am really proud. I'm really proud of what we did there. Yeah, I think the the tangible things are so hard because we really have only been doing things for two years. Um, and so I think just relationships, uh, of mending relationships, building relationships. I mean, who would have ever thought that a city mayor would have the former county mayor's wife of his campaign treasure, right? Um, and, but the things that we have laid out, I mean, you know, the grants that we've gotten from, from TDOT to, to build a sidewalk on, uh, on Parkway to connect the health department to Kroger, next phase we'll apply for will be from Kroger to uh, Aldersgate, so they'll bring sidewalks from the mm -hmm. bypass all the way to North Parkway Middle School. Uh, rebuilding airways. Now we got that grant two years ago. We're just now they're letting us they're letting the money so we can actually start doing the design phase of it. When I would come into town, let me just say this, and I remember hearing the announcement about airways and mm -hmm. redoing it. And then I got this job in Haywood, and every day I would because I live by Lambeth, I would come in on airways. Yeah, when the world are they gonna start doing something? And I would be like, I cannot wait yeah. until. But that is gonna be such a a special place once you get it oh, all fixed gosh. because there's so much potential in that area. Yeah, I, think. I think for us, you know, yes, we had to wait. Yes, it was awful, but I think we're going to be able to do phase one and two at the same time. So we're going to be able to design and build from Highland all the way to Hollywood for it one swoop. And then our phase three that we have out now is all the way to state street and phase four will take us to the bypass. And so we'll find out sometime in the next few months about phase three. Um, and then, you know, doing just setting the plans up, right. Being able to, to, strategically plan putting in a million dollars a year for pedestrian investment infrastructure and connectivity uh, i think probably the the two things that stick out to me the most is um, the wheelchair swing that we have at north park uh, we're installing two more right now uh, but that was going to watch the the boys basketball team we stopped in spring hill and i was chasing kids up a ladder and someone on the playground and saw that and I took a picture sent it to Tony Black said I want one in Jackson and I mean I'll never forget that day seeing her in that swing mm -hmm. first time in her entire life to do that and then you be able to purchase Jackson Plaza I mean that land lease was supposed to run out February 28 2026 and through codes and, and our fire marshal just 
I don't just make don't let them just sit there and let those buildings deteriorate anymore. Let needs to make it uncomfortable for them. They need to fix it. It needs to be presentable. And then fast forward eight months, and now we're in a conversation about buying it, and then now I've purchased it and started the plan to to look at the feasibility for an Arena Convention Center. And that's huge because downtown is is like growing rapidly businesses coming in there's like a vibe down there mm-hmm. finally like yeah. i feel like there's been so many starts and stops north jackson and northwest jackson is going to keep on going oh, yeah. but yeah. it's it's weird how i guess since i was since we were kids the mall was like a a great place but it does feel like that things have sort of stretched and now that it's sort of desolate in that area and, and my girlfriend mentioned that she grew up here but she hasn't she hadn't been to jackson in close to 20 years mm-hmm until about a year and a half ago. And she was like, man, like what's gonna happen here? She's like, that, that was her question. What's yeah. gonna happen to this part of town? I was like, you know what, I, I hadn't thought about it. Mm-hmm. So when I saw that you guys were looking at that and, and wanting to make that investment, I was like, that's perfect. Because you can't just let a, a part of town continue to to empty out like well, that without that doing too, something. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the geographical center of our city. Uh, that is a connection to U.S. Highway 45. Mm-hmm. Then you have Highway 412 and 70 right there. You're a mile from the interstate, and then you have the bypass on the other end of that. And so this, that connection point there um, is is crucial. And you know, what that what that can be and then what it can do, you know, the plans that we're looking at aren't just that property. It's how do we strategically plan that entire area from Parkway to Hermitage to Tinker Hill to Linwood. And so it's looking at that entire area of how we plan that. Uh, and that goes along with our, our next phase of our strategic master plan in our sub areas on, on how we create zoning ordinances. Because right now with our with our redevelopment areas, it's pretty much just me and Stan Pyle and our plan director telling people no. Um, we're, we're not going to let you put in a Jiffy Lube next to the other oil change place next to the mall just because they're trying to sell off land. Right. Or, um, you know, we're not going to let you build, you know, 18 track houses, prefab houses just because you want to. Um, we actually have things to pack us up instead of me just standing in, in the gap saying no, um, but then create those plans to create some long-term sustainability and growth. Yeah. So I think, and I've said this a, a few times and people I've talked with or on the radio, like it's not a, it's not a question of if Jackson's going to grow. Jackson's growing. It's happening mm-hmm. whether we want it to or not, which I think most people do. Yeah. I'm sure there's some people that don't, but it's happening. So if you come out on top May 2nd, and you've got your next four years ahead of you, presumably pandemic-free, presumably. What does that look like to you? I think for anyone to sit here and say this is what it's going to look like mm-hmm. um, is lying. I think for us, it's, it's well, how we grow, right? What do you want it to yeah, look I like? Yeah, I think how we grow is more important than, than what the growth is going to be. Uh, you don't want to end up like some cities in, in this state who last year during the summer had a water ban in Tennessee. Can't water your yard, can't fill your pool, can't wash your car. Um, how do we not outgrow our infrastructure, but how do we strategically do that? And that's where the plans come into place. How do we invest in quality of life? And, and I say this everywhere I go and talk to people. The chamber's job is to sell Jackson. The city's job is to make sure Jackson's a place people want to buy. And so how are we making those investments? Those that, you know, nearly $5 million in our parks this year we're looking at. Um, how do we make it a place that people feel safe, people want to go to? Um, I'm really excited moving forward looking at how do we redesign Muse Park. Um, I was at a conference um, last July and got to talk to the landscape architect who did Shelby Farms and the New York High Line. And I, have, you I, been to the, have you been on the I, High Line? I've seen, like, she did a presentation on the High Line, so I've seen pictures, seen video. It's and incredible. It was, yeah, and um, I see, you know, I have a I have a 111-acre park in the center of my city that was developed 50 years ago and hadn't been touched since. I said, there's probably... 40 or so acres we don't even use and our eyes just lit up so are you serious i said yes i we need to redesign that and make it more usable for everybody and so she's been in touch with our, our recreation and parks department trying to start the plans to look at that and, and try to figure out the funding on what that looks like to plan it and then build it uh but yet yeah, how do we make jackson the best it can be connect people uh we're going to continue to invest in that pedestrian infrastructure um, we want people to be healthy, people to feel connected, not closed off in silos, um, and then and then have that smart growth. Infill is going to be important. Um, you can only request annexation so much until you get mm. into Gibson County. Um, and so um, how do we redevelop areas? Uh, we're limited in a lot of ways um, because of state statute. Uh, Florida has done a great job of, of doing inclusive zoning. 
we can't. And so what inclusive? What, what is inclusive zoning? So that means if um, we can zone an area. So if somebody says, hey, I have 50 acres I want to rezone for houses, we can say, yes, we'll do that. We'll rezone it for you. But 40% of your houses have to meet affordable housing standards. I'm so glad you said that yeah. because that's what that is something that has been it's not I mean I don't know if bothering is the right word but where I live I live in Midtown mm-hmm. and I am seeing so many houses being flipped yeah. painted bought like it, it it's happened at a staggering rate and I I've got people I had a guy out of California call me mm-hmm. uh, just last week are you interested in selling your house yeah now I know there's only so much that the city can do as far as like what you just said. Very about little we can very, do. Yeah. Especially in neighborhoods that are already established, yeah. right? Because there's very little, mm-hmm. but like there's got, I mean, and I'm sure that's something you have your eye on because yeah. how do people not get priced out when right. a city grows as fast as we make? And, and for us, it's, it's the, the properties that we own, the properties that the county and the CRA own, this allows us to deed restrict. And so I, I've talked with our planning department and, and tried to communicate this to our CRA is, Hey, instead of, instead of marketing, 30 spots let's market 10 and let's get a developer to do it let's deed restrict four or five of those 10 to make them affordable so where they're still getting their money but they're also we're, we can we can do that in tennessee we can deed restrict properties that we own um and so we can still create some affordable housing opportunities and then working with the housing authority um I, I told mark reed this our first meeting um end goal i want before i leave this office is lincoln courts torn down I want quality, affordable housing. Mm-hmm. And so we're working toward that through through some federal programs. Allenton Heights has to be first because it's actually the oldest. And then we can work toward Lincoln Courts. But how do we, you know, tear those down, you know, move people to houses that have been built. And so we're not displacing anyone, but move them. Built, get the houses built first. Get the houses built first. Get them, get them, into get them there. Mm-hmm. Tear that down. Redevelop that. And then move on there. And so they're, they're working through some programs now that we can hopefully start doing that in the next year or two. That's incredible. Man, being mayor, uh, there's a lot more to it than I think people think there is. A couple, just a couple Just, times. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I think what's important is that with, and, and you know your position, there's a lot of power in that position, just the way the structure is set up. Mm-hmm. And I think, I know we started this part of the conversation talking about your team. I think having a cabinet, having a team around you, builds in accountability i think it builds in a lot of to where yeah i mean you know none, none of them are guest men right right <laughs> and that's that's so important though in this position too yeah. because you could just have one assistant who's going to do everything you say mm-hmm. and that and it's going to be then it becomes your town and it's yeah. not everybody else's town right. and so that's and that's something you didn't have to do so hats off hats off for doing that Best of luck the rest of the campaign it. season. You got about two, two and a half weeks left. Nineteen days. Not that I'm counting. No, you're not counting not at all. I'm counting at all. Yeah. I kind of nailed that. That's that's yeah. literally almost two and a half yeah. weeks. All right. Best of luck. Thank you so much for sitting down, no, thanks for talking having me. to us. Yeah. This was great. Very enjoyable. I appreciate it. Thank you.